Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Hypotension is a defining hemodynamic marker of shock. It is a common clinical problem in critically ill patients and is a frequent target of therapeutic interventions in the ICU. The aim of these interventions are to restore blood to a level that is sufficient to maintain vital organ perfusion while we identify and correct the underlying causes. Fluids and vasopressors are commonly utilized in these cases. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss emerging data leading the way towards a personalized approach in vasopressor support. We will discuss angiotensin II, physiology, renin, among other important concepts. We are honored to have Dr. Ashish Khanna as our guest today. Dr. Khanna is an anesthesia and critical care physician. He is associate professor and section head for research in the Department of Anesthesiology, section on critical care medicine of the Wake Forest School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Dr. Khanna is a prolific author and researcher. His areas of interest include hemodynamics, outcomes, vasopressors, and septic shock. Dr. Khanna has was a lead author for the Athos III paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that led to the approval of angiotensin II as a vasopressor for the treatment of refractory hypotension in adults with septic or other types of distributive shock. Ashish, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you, Sergio. It's a pleasure to be here today. So I think that uh, we're going to take a departure from a lot of the recent episodes on uh, critical matters where we were focusing a lot on COVID topics and talk, talk about a, a topic that I think is very, very interesting, but also very relevant to our practices because it really centers around the use of vasopressors for hemodynamic support in hypotension shock, especially distributive shock. So I think that as an introduction, maybe we can start, Ashish, with just a, your general take on hypotension. I know that you've done a lot of studies looking at the effect of, of hypotension and outcomes of patients both in shock and not in shock. Maybe we can start with a general overview to introduce the topic. Sure. Uh, thank you, Sergio. Again, it's a pleasure to be here and talk about something that's very uh, near and dear to me, which is um, hypotension. And uh, hypotension, you know, is something that uh, we as intensivists and perioperative physicians, uh, perioperative medicine physicians, when we talk about anesthesiologists or even surgeons or internists or or nearly every specialty of medicine sees hypotension in some way, shape, or the other, whether it be in the operating room, the ICU, the post-anesthesia care unit, or, or in the inpatient wards in a hospital. Um, it is also one of those things that is very easily controllable and manageable. Uh, however, uh, if you look across the hospital on any given day and just, you know, just just do a snapshot of data, you will see that uh, at least a half of uh, all patients in the hospital at any one given time are uh, hypotensive. And sometimes they're hypotensive because they're really sick. And sometimes they're hypotensive because their hypotension is going under-monitored or unmonitored. 
and sometimes they're uh, hypotensive despite our best efforts to correct their hypotension with fluids, vasopressors, and, and so on. So uh, that, you know, when I started working on hypotension, I, I really thought about it as the one thing that we see all the time. It's probably present in every single patient who is sick in one way, shape, or the other in a hospital, and yet we're and 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 knowing um knowing that we feel empowered as a lot of different specialists to correct hypotension still we don't seem to be doing a great job with hypotension um, correction and that's what sort of started me on this um, hypotensive journey as i call it and that's where i got very interested specifically in in the critical ill population um, very quickly, a story comes to 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 me when I uh, talk about hypotension in the ICU, and um, this was my, my early career. I was uh, do, doing one of my night shifts in the ICU, and um, I had a medical student, I believe, who was sitting with me and um, and just talking about things. And I was putting in orders on a patient in the ICU and putting in an order for norepinephrine. And um, you know, when the order set popped up. It, it automatically said titrate to a map of 65. And it gave me the option to change that, but the default was a map of 65. And you know, the medical student turned around and asked me, why do we why do we titrate all our pressors to a map of 65? I turned around and you know started talking about the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines and this and that. But then he said, well, why not a map of 75? Why not 85? Why not 55? Are all patients alike? You know, do we know uh, what, what, at what blood pressure our patients in the ICU have organ system failure? And, you know, I looked at him and I, and I sort of diverted the conversation because no one wants to really admit in front of a medical student that you don't know your literature. But then I went back to my office and I started searching and I, and I came up with nothing. We really never really knew. We did have surviving sepsis telling us that, you know, you're supposed to target uh, to a map of 65 when you titrate vasopressors, but we didn't really know uh, in terms of hypotensive thresholds when patients have organ system injury, uh, critically ill patients specifically in the ICU. We specifically didn't know anything about myocardial injury. That is, a, again, an area of great personal interest for me. And so I started on the journey of investigating hypotension more. And that's that's why, you know, all of that that has come off of it, uh, we've, we've done a lot of work in, in large uh, retrospective data sets, and, and uh, we've been able to establish some uh, thresholds of hypotension that are sort of unconventional, but are definitely backed by some uh, uh, data and signals. And I think that before we, we we dive into some of those findings, which I think are fascinating, I, I, it's a great uh, point you made is that uh, we've taken almost like a dogma 65 of MAP as a target. And uh, even though it might be best, uh, it might be based on best available data, by no means is it something that is conclusive and that is uh, full of, of, of studies. And some of the studies probably that we need are very difficult to do. But could you maybe start uh, before we dive into your findings and your studies, Ashish, to just saying, how do you define hypotension? 
That's a great question, Sergio. I define uh, hypotension uh, as the best blood pressure that will prevent organ system injury in my critically ill patient. Uh, if you're going to ask me a number, I will say I don't have a precise number for you. I don't want the world to go off one single number. I will still say that 65 has, has stood the test of time uh, because you know if you go back to the history of uh, randomized controlled trials in hypotension and septic shock, the work of Pierre Asfar and colleagues way back in 2014, I believe, uh, the sepsis BAM group published their work in the New England Journal where they looked at you know, high blood pressure target and a, a low blood pressure target in patients with septic shock. And they compared a map of 80 to 85 versus a map of 70 to 75. And overall, they did not find a mortality difference. However, they did have subtle differences. For example, they did see that in patients with chronic hypertension, who were randomized to a lower MAP target, that was 70 or 75, there was more um, kidney injury. Similarly, in their higher blood pressure target group, there was more arrhythmias. Now, I can go on and dissect their work in, into many pieces and, and, and sort of look at their work under the microscope, but I will say that randomized controlled trial data is the best data that's out there. However, if I were to do that trial again today, I would do it differently. I would look at things like myocardial injury defined by a troponin increase and not necessarily a full-blown uh, myocardial infarction. I would, I would look at a different sample size. I would have uh, you know, diff looked at different thresholds of blood pressure and, and so on. Uh, that's discussion for another day, but coming Back to your question, I will say that hypotension is, is a pressure that best prevents organ system injury in my critically ill patient. It is governed by the patient's pre-morbid status, the age of the patient, patient's pre-existing blood pressure. I think that's a very that's a very common problem. We don't really know what our patient's baseline blood pressures are. And that's also governed by um, what kind of vasopressor support my patient is on. Um, so um, what I have done is that I definitely don't choose 65 for all my patients. I still choose 65 for some of them, but I do lean on higher pressures. I, it's not uncommon for me to titrate my vasopressor to a map of 80 to 85. The topic of today is personalizing vasopressor use it and it from what I'm hearing as she's 65 might be an okay starting point if you have to use a general number based on what we know so far but really like many other things that we'll talk about today the right number might be a personal number for each patient and understanding that and trying to understand what are the factors that can impact that number for each individual patient that we're treating are going to be very important at the bedside and even in the in the clinical trial that you mentioned where they randomized one map versus another they did find out that in those who are chronically hypertensive when we know that higher maps might be associated with less renal failure and other problems so clearly it sounds like 
the message here is that 65 is the starting point that people have uh, recommended based on the, the, da the data that we have that it's not all conclusive, but uh, it shouldn't be taken as dogma as this is the one number that fits all. And you should always be trying to figure out for that individual patient what else is going on or what is the patient telling you in terms of the best blood pressure for that patient. Absolutely. It's uh, the era of precision medicine. And I think in general, a one-size-fits-all approach is out. And we, we have to practice precision medicine, individualized uh, therapeutic targets for um, every patient in the ICU. You mentioned uh, the impact that uh, blood pressure or, or trying to avoid organ dysfunction, obviously the ultimate um, outcome that we measure in many trials is mortality and we want to avoid that as much as possible. But in critically ill patients, we also know that avoiding or mitigating organ dysfunction is critical. Uh, could you share with us some of the studies that you've done? I know that you've looked at uh, general shock critical care populations and also post-op populations, specifically trying to understand a little bit better the impact of different blood pressures or uh, time-weighted averages of a specific map uh, over time in terms of outcomes, but also organ dysfunction. Sure, yes, gladly. Um, so uh, all of this work was published uh, uh, early to mid-2018 and and we've been you know moving on further from that point and we're still looking at some other outcomes but uh, the largest data set was uh, 10,000 patients with all kinds of uh, shock mostly uh, medical septic shock uh, from a large electronic data set in the United States and uh, what we saw in that patient population was uh, number one we were able to establish the uh, the threshold of 65 and the amount of damage associated with blood pressure when it goes less than that threshold of a map of 65. So what we saw was that for every one unit of time-weighted average map less than 65, there was a seven to 11% increase in acute kidney injury and myocardial injury uh, for, for patients who would experience that kind of blood pressure drop over time. Now, all this basically just reinforced what we knew, although we took myocardial injury as an outcome, which we defined as a troponin rise with or without symptoms we excluded patients with non-ischemic causes of uh, atroponin increase. What we were excited with in the same data set was when we did a, when we looked at different thresholds of MAP, we saw that the earliest um, increase in the risk of myocardial injury, mortality and acute kidney injury is at a map of 85. And as the blood pressure dropped from 85, a map of 85 down to a map of 55, the risk of myocardial injury, acute kidney injury, and mortality went up in a near stepwise manner. So this was interesting. We were now saying that a map of 85 may be that blood pressure where your patient is first exposed to the risk of 
organ system failure and mortality. Um, in fact, uh, right after this paper was published in Intensive Care Medicine, Pierre Asfar himself wrote an editorial for this paper, and uh, that editorial was uh, titled Map of 65, Target of the Past, with a big question mark at the end. And obviously that, that excited us because coming from Pierre himself, it, it meant a lot. Um, you know, and but the point he made in that editorial was, you know, he talked about his own work and his own large randomized trial, which is truly the only landmark trial when it, when we look at blood pressure targets in septic shock. And then he talked about our work, and you know, he he made the comment that you know, randomized controlled trial data will all, always be better than large retrospective data sets. There is obviously hidden confounding in large retrospective data sets. Uh, he, he was uh, all praise for us for, for our best efforts at trying to make the uh, data set as granular as possible by excluding all kinds of patients and controlling for all kinds of confounders. However, he made some very important points. He said that this is a message to all of us in critical care medicine to rethink blood pressure targets, to rethink the next randomized trial of high and low blood pressures, what outcomes we want to study, uh, how we want to study them, how we want to randomize our patients, and also a message to all of us uh, specifically who are interested in large data sets in the ICU that we need more granular data coming from our bedside monitors. We simply cannot have blood pressure data that's recorded every once in a half an hour, right? Because when we do large retrospective analyses, the more granular we can have uh, data packed together, the better it is for, for us to see a clearer signal. So he made some great points. Anyway, um, around that time, we also looked at specifically a post-surgical population. So a population that really interests, interests a lot of us who practice a, uh, anesthesia critical care because a lot of us work in the, the, the typical SICU or the surgical ICU where you get sicker patients from the operating room as direct admissions. So we looked at about 3,000 patients who were direct admissions from the operating room to the surgical ICU. and we almost replicated our findings uh, uh, with the other data set that we had just published. We saw that in our patient population, an overall population median blood pressure was a map of 87. And comparing any two patients who, who were at a map of less than 87, for about every 10 millimeters drop in, in MAP, there was a nearly 30 to 35% increased risk of myocardial injury and or mortality and similar outcomes in patients with, with acute kidney injury. And again, this, this uh, obviously was exciting. It, it reinforced so two data sets that are speaking exactly the same language. However, we also did see that post-operative ICU outcomes depended on intraoperative hypotension. So despite our best efforts to control for intraoperative hypotension, post-operative adverse events were dependent on hypotension that happened in the operating room. Made sense because we all know that patients who, who have prolonged courses in the operating room with long exposures to hypotension 
when they up, end up in the surgical ICU, that hypotension is simply a continuation of the hypotension they're seeing in the operating room. But it also made a point to all of us that resuscitation probably starts in the operating room. That's where we really need to be strong, uh, strong about defending a blood pressure because the damage starts then and not when your patient ends up in the surgical ICU. So this was really the two large pillars of um, data that um, that we published. And then we, we followed it up with, um, we've also looked at uh, delirium, for example, in the surgical ICU. And, and we've seen that at a map of about 75 is that that is that threshold point where patients who were below a map of 75 have had about a 30% increased risk of ICU delirium. And, and then our future work in this area will be looking specifically as, at blood pressure components. So specifically looking at systolic, diastolic uh, and, and pulse pressure to see if there is a difference in, in blood pressure components and, and their effect on, on outcomes. Um, and, and someday I also want to look at the effect of cardiac output and things of that nature with more and more continuous cardiac output being used in, in our um, ICU population. So, so really lots of large data and, and data sets and lots of numbers, but I, that sort of reinforces my belief in the fact that 65 is definitely not that that one religiously followed number. There is more to it. There is a lot of signals out there and we need to do more in this area and we need to treat each patient slightly differently. So clearly the, it's important for, for our listeners to, to understand that there are clear implications for our patients uh, of being hypotensive of having mean arterial pressures below what's normal in terms not only of increased risk of mortality, but increased risk of, of myocardial dysfunction or myocardial injury as measured by troponin, acute kidney injury. One of the things that I think has been embedded in people's mind is that 65 milligrams uh, of mercury MAP as dogma. And I think that it's an okay starting point, but there's a lot more to it, like you said, and that probably is one of the first things that we recognize when we're talking about um, personalizing our, our approach to hemodynamic support to our individual patient who's at our bedside. One question I wanted to ask you about these studies before we move on to a, to a different uh, uh, area, Ashish, you mentioned that in the post-op patients, intra-op hypotension obviously had a greater impact than uh, hypotension in the ICU and for the and you mentioned the reasons. What, what, was there any any data or any findings that would suggest if in those critically ill patients that are not, a, or maybe in, in both groups, is it the degree of hypotension or is it the duration that matters most, or it's the combination of those that ultimately determines the outcome? Yes, great question. Again, I always say hypotension should never be defined by um, just a uh, degree without a duration. So it's both the amount and duration of hypotension always. So, so not only did we see the thresholds that I just talked about, but we also looked at a, the time de dependent effect of hypotension that you just talked about. So for example, we saw that for every one hour that was spent at a map less than 85, there was a significantly increased risk of organ system failure. Similarly, for any duration of time uh, at a map less than 75, there was a um, significant increase in organ 
system failure. So yes, there was a definite duration associated with it. Clearly, the duration of time was more at higher maps, and as you went to relatively lower maps, even a minute of time at, at a lower map was associated with organ system failure. Now again, remember, retrospective data will show you lots of odds ratios and, and risks, but you have to keep it in clinical context. And clinical context would also mean that, yes, you know, if your patient's bleeding, you need to fix the bleeding quickly. If your patient needs source control, go back to the operating room first. Um, you know, if you don't do that, then correcting hypotension in the ICU will probably not make a difference in outcomes. Absolutely. So we talked about defending the map and trying to individualize that for what our patient and the particular organs in that patient require. And obviously there's still a lot that we need to learn there, but I think that that's a great starting point. Can we talk a little bit about just in general terms, the approach people have to using vasopressors? We obviously have three categories of vasopressors now available, but I think that it's not uncommon for people to keep increasing the dose and keep adding catecholamines to a patient where maybe, I mean, there is a more of a multimodal approach that might make sense in physiology. And uh, obviously, as we gain data in this area, we'll learn a lot more. But I think just from a kind of a teleological standpoint, it, it just makes sense to understand physiology a little bit better like we do with other diseases. Can you share with us your thoughts on that, Ashish? Sure. Yeah, again, you know, um, for years together, uh, you know, the, the vasopressor toolbox, uh, as a, a lot of my learned friends call it, ha only had catecholamines. So all kinds of catecholamines, right from, you know, dopamine, phenylephrine, or norepinephrine, epinephrine, and 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 some people would also include inotropes like dobutamine in that. And, and that's what we played with. We heavily relied on norepinephrine as our single presser. We kept escalating it, you know, till our patients got, you know, black fingertips and, and so on. Um, but uh, I, I guess the, the best way of looking at it is a, uh, like we do early antibiotics in, in critical care resuscitation, we should be looking at a uh, early multimodal vasopressor therapy. And the reason for that is that you don't really know, we talked about individualized care for our critically ill patients. So like we don't know what that magic number for blood pressure is, it's hopefully more than 65. Similarly, we don't know whether a patient is a catecholamine responder, a vasopressin responder, or, uh, you know, while we talk about the newer class, the, the angiotensins and, and, and uh, related agents responder. And, and because we don't know that today, the, the way we approach it, where, you know, we usually put a patient on a catecholamine, wait for a day or two, the, the, the amount of catecholamine goes on increasing, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 mics um, uh, or so of nor, norepinephrine. Um, and then we think about, oh, now it's the catecholamine failure, we'll go to vaso, add some vasopressin, and then three days later, then we think about XYZ magic drug down, downstream. That stepwise approach to escalating a presser, waiting for it to fail, and then getting to the next presser, while it sounds theoretically appealing, what we don't realize is in, in, the, in the background, 
there is a progressive multi-system organ failure. And with every organ system that fails, we know that ICU mortality goes up several fold. So you're not doing justice to your presser number two or presser number three, because by, by the time you bring around presser number three, the patient's already, you know, has a lactate of 20 and, and is severely acidotic and, and is dying. Then your presser number three <laughs> gets a bad name because you feel, oh, it's, uh, it's not working. So I think, I think our, our whole approach of managing this needs to be different. I often tell my trainees, if you know, patient comes into the ICU, now is your time to intervene the first six to 12 hours. If you have any bright ideas, if you want to do anything differently, now is your time, not seven days later. Seven days later is probably time to talk to the family and say, you know, your loved one's not doing well, let's be realistic. But now is the time to actually do something. And that's where I think our, our approach has to change. The whole multi-class approach, Sergio, is also, I mean, this is not me saying it. Um, I mean, if you, th there is ample literature that talks about um, high-dose vasopressor therapy and poor outcomes. And, and the one paper I love to cite in my work, and I really swear by that work, is the work of, um, Samuel Brown and colleagues from Intermountain Health. And I believe this paper came out in chest uh, at least six or seven years ago and, and simply looked at high dose exposure to high-dose vasopressors and, and I believe it was 30 and 90-day mortality in critically ill patients with shock. And, and what those in, investigators very nicely showed in a retrospective analysis was that as the norepinephrine equivalence of a high-dose presser goes beyond um, 0.6 to 0.8 mics per kilo per minute, and, and anything beyond that, then you're looking at a, a upwards of 80% 30 to 90-day um, mortality for these patients. So that, that really means that once you're on those high-dose pressers, irrespective of whether, you, whether your primary problem is fixed or not, most of your patients are not going to make it out alive out of the ICU. And that is, that is huge. Plus, there is ample data that talks about uh, the, the, the arrhythmias, the atrial arrhythmias, the, the, the vascular problems associated with, with high-dose catecholamines and so on and so forth. It does not mean that catecholamines don't have a place. I think they have a very, very important place in management of septic shock. However, monotherapy with catecholamines and delaying initiation of a balanced vasopressor approach is the biggest problem. And that is what has to change if you're really going to look at better outcomes for our patients. So in terms of a balanced approach, um, just I mean to, to, to remind our listeners, what are the other two classes that, that we have available, Ashish, and how do you think about them in general terms before we go into more specifics on angiotensin two? Sure, so um, a common um, second uh, friend for us in the ICU has been vasopressin. It's been around for more than a decade or so. And, and the, the premise there being that there's a vasopressin deficiency in septic shock, there's been Lots of landmark trials comparing vasopressin and norepinephrine, and uh, some of the work by uh, Tony Gordon and colleagues from England, and and you know more more recently, um, specifically the the Vanish trial. Um, 
I think vasopressin has a very important role. There is definitely a vasopressin deficiency that has been shown in septic shock. Um, I think it's a very uh, good, relatively safe vasopressor. Um, there is definitely data that suggests harm at higher doses, and higher, I say, more than 0 0.06, 0 0.08. Uh, the threat of mesenteric ischemia comes in. So it's not really a very titrable, titratable presser. Um, however, um, it's great for vasoplegia. It's great for preventing atrial arrhythmias, patient with atrial fibrillation, septic shock. I'd like to use vasopressin ahead of norepinephrine if I could. Um, so a, a proven place and works very well with norepinephrine once you're getting to that 20 mics per minute of norepinephrine, even about 10 to 15 mics of norepinephrine, and you see an upward trajectory, vasopressin should be there to, to allow you to de-escalate your catecholamines. And then, you know, uh, celepressin has also been tried. It's, it's a part of that vasopressin family. However, not approved by the US FDA yet, so I'm not going to go into celepressin today. Just stick to vasopressin. Um, angiotensin II, uh, again, now, we, we can talk a lot about angiotensin II, but specifically angiotensin II then works on the third stool, uh, third leg of this three-legged stool of management of blood pressure, where one leg is catecholamines and the adrenal medulla and so on, the sympathetic pathway. The other leg is vasopressin, the, the, the V1 and V2 receptors. With the, with the posterior pituitary and vasopressin pathway. And the third leg is the renin, um, angiotensin, aldosterone axis where the, where the angiotensin II is going to work. And really, that is the role of angiotensin II to provide that balance, to de-escalate catecholamines, uh, hopefully de-escalate vasopressin as well. And as we'll, we'll, we'll talk today, it probably has um, a specific place in uh, in certain uh, shock uh, uh, biotypes and one of the things that that i enjoy when i'm not doing medicine is uh, fountain pens and and old and new fountain pens and there's a term as she's in the fountain pen collecting world that's nos which is new old stock which is a very unique finding of you find the fountain pen that is brand new but it's 30 40 years old and never has never been sold so it's a new old stock so it seems that in some respect, angiotensin II is new old stock. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, angiotensin, how it works, where it comes from, and share with us uh, your experience with Athos III as lead author, and that uh, that was a study that obviously propelled the FDA approval and the reintroduction of angiotensin II in our world. And then we can dive into some of the newer data that's emerging, and like you said, on specific phenotypes of shock that might be of interest for us. Sure. Yes. I, I love the analogy, new old stock, by the way. It's, that's great. I love it. Um, so <laughs> the story of angiotensin II actually goes all the way back to the 1950s, where a um, gentleman by the name of um, Irvine Page uh, at Cleveland Clinic uh, was doing a lot of research on angiotensin II. And at the same time, there was uh, investigators in Latin America that were also looking at angiotensin II. And interestingly, it was not called angiotensin II back then. It was called hypertensin because it was a hormone that was known to be associated with intractable hypertension. 
and a lot of work that was being done and is still being done is was an attempt to block this hormone so modern analogy of that is all the ACE inhibitors and ARBs that were developing but no one was really thinking of trying to use it in shock then if you look at for example JAMA in the in the early 1960s I believe there was you know a report of 20 patients who received with all kinds of shock who received angiotensin 2 that was bovine angiotensin 2 by the way and and angiotensin 2 uh, rescued them uh, from from shock and, and hypotension and there were several case reports in, in the years to follow a case report here a case report there of where angiotensin 2 had been used as a rescue and someone was dying with ACE inhibitor poisoning and a, a rescue and someone had really bad anaphylaxis and so on and so forth so it was there in the background where people were using sort of off-label to sort of rescue them in, in crisis situations, but it, it had not been developed. It, there was no formal trials. There was no real, uh, you know, no real production of angiotensin II, so to speak. Um, and then it was not until uh, the group at George Washington led by uh, Lakmir Chavla, uh, and joined by uh, Larry Bussey and and other colleagues, they they um, got a hold of angiotensin too. And there's a backstory to that as well, which I, I'll I'll stay away from that backstory of how they got a hold of angiotensin too. That's it's a it's a very complicated story that goes all the way to Australia and then comes back to the United States to connect everyone. Uh, but anyway, um, they got the molecule and they did a 20 patient pilot trial on patients with with shock in the icu with, with high output shock and what this saw in that and that trial was the the real ethos trial the angiotensin 2 in high output shock trial um, in 20 patients they saw a significant blood pressure and a catecholamine sparing effect and um, the the results were pretty dramatic in fact if you read more about the trial there is uh, letters to the editor that have been published uh, around the trial and, edi and editorials where there were some patients who just had an absolutely dramatic response to uh, the angiotensin 2 that they were given. And, and um, you know, Dr. Chavla Mink actually thought that those patients were on ACE inhibitors. And um, as it turns out, uh, those patients probably had really bad ARDS. And angiotensin 2 is related to ARDS because the angiotensin converting enzyme is a pulmonary capillary um, endothelial uh, enzyme and knowing that ARDS would destroy the ability of the lungs to produce angiotensin converting enzyme thus leading to low endogenous angiotensin 2 that is is sort of the backstory to the physiology there which sort of in, made this group more interested in how and why this was an endogenous substance that was that was really low in a class of patients with septic shock and how synthetic angiotensin 2 could then help them out in a very exquisite manner and that happened they, they armed with that pilot data um, you know uh, Dr. Chavla and colleagues then uh, went to the FDA and 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 then worked with us in in designing the ethos um, three trial, the angiotensin two in high output shock three. 
And, um, and really the important part as I talk about uh, this trial is the fact that it was a phase three trial. That's where the three comes from. And that's where people sometimes ask me, oh, there's ethos and ethos three, there's no ethos two. Well, it was a phase three trial. That's where the ethos three comes from. It was a uh, pre-FDA uh, uh, trial where the FDA was um, hand in hand with us in trying to design the trial protocol. So we had something called a special protocol assessment agreement with the US FDA, which really meant that the FDA was in complete uh, agreement with the way the study had been designed. And if the drug did show what we we proposed it would show, then the FDA in a special protocol assessment agreement would not go back and, and question the trial design. And so what, what the FDA wanted uh, the investigative teams to prove was that number one, the vasopressor did what it's supposed to do, which is increase blood pressure. So our primary outcome was getting to a mean arterial pressure of 75 or 10 more than baseline. And number two, our secondary outcomes were a difference in SOFA scores, sequential organ failure assessment scores, and achieving a catecholamine sparing effect. And finally, because it was a pre-FDA approval trial, we also looked at a series of uh, adverse events, serious adverse events, and, and so on and so forth. And, and really the way the trial was designed was, um, it was a massive undertaking. There was um, 80 plus sites, three continents, uh, the North America um, in, in, in includes US and Canada, uh, a number of sites in Europe, and then uh, Australia and New Zealand. Um, and over a period of two years, we were able to start and finish the trial and publish the data, which I feel is a testimony to my uh, co-investigators on the trial and all the colleagues and all, everyone was involved in this because uh, a septic shock or a shock trial like ATOS-3 is a lot of work. And uh, we randomized about 340 odd patients to receive either placebo or angiotensin II. Our basic randomization criteria were patients who were on more than 0.2 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine equivalents. So norepinephrine equivalents here would mean about say 10 to 15 mics of mics per minute, micrograms per minute of norepinephrine with about 0.02 of vasopressin. That would then translate into a norepinephrine equivalence of 0.2 micrograms per kilo per minute. That concept of norepinephrine equivalence was given to standardize all the different vasopressors that a patient could be on with, with high output shock. Um, <clears throat> the important point I want to make here uh, as I talk about randomization is that all of our patients in ATOS-3 were volume replete. Trial criteria demanded that all of our patients receive at least 25 cc's per kilo of initial resuscitation and that we are able to show that the patient does not have either hemorrhagic or low output shock or cardiogenic shock or is under resuscitated. So we had to show a mixed venous oxygenation of more than 70%, um, a normal to high CVP, and a normal cardiac index at least 2.1. Um, so based on that, we knew that our patients were not volume behind. They did not have cardiogenic shock. 
They did not have hypovolemic shock at the time of randomization. They were simply hypotensive, um, a map less than 65 in the presence of significant, that is more than 0.2 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine equivalent vasopressors. At that point, patients were randomized to either get angiotensin II or placebo. The trial itself ran to 48 hours and then up to seven days. So for the 48 hours, patients were then divided into time zero to time at hour three, and then hour three to hour 48. In the first three hours, background standard of care pressors were kept constant, and the study drug was up titrated from 20 nanograms per kilo per minute all the way to 200 nanograms per kilo per minute to see if a MAP of 75 could be achieved. Hour three onwards to hour 48, the investigators were allowed to titrate background pressors and the study drug, this time to achieve MAPs between 65 and 75. And then hour 48, the uh, study drug was titrated off in a protocolized manner. If the patient became really unstable, the investigator had the option of restarting the study drug again, make it run all the way up to one week. Now, when I talk about the trial, I'll tell you the first three hours was the time where we looked at the potency of angiotensin II and did it make it to a map of 75? So did it behave like a potent vasopressor? And then from hour three to hour 48, we looked at the uh, overall catecholamine sparing effect of angiotensin II. And obviously we looked at you know, adverse events all the way through. We looked at mortality data, even though the trial wasn't powered for mortality. So very quickly, you know, if, if I talk about outcomes, uh, we, we are, we're all familiar with outcomes. There was, a, uh, as far as the primary outcome is concerned, angiotensin II achieved uh, a, a MAP of 75 in, in a large majority of uh, patients, more than 70% of our patients, in fact. And, and there was a highly statistically significant outcome, achieved catecholamine sparing, achieved better cardiovascular SOFA scores, um, did not show a mortality difference, though the trend line was encouraging, but the, uh, with a sample size of about 340, we were not powered for mortality. And then, you know, there was uh, overall no difference in adverse events, although there was some data to suggest uh, that uh, there was uh, increased incidence of uh, thrombotic uh, complications in patients who receive angiotensin II. Now that's where we stood after we uh, finished the uh, ATHOS-3 trial. And, and that's, that really very quickly then led the FDA to first allow angiotensin II to be used in as, as a, um, you know, in, in a compassionate use form. And then I believe in, in the December of 2018, we uh, achieved formal FDA approval for the drug to be used to increase blood pressure in adults with septic or other distributive shock. And then, and then further, the, the EMA in Europe approved the drug as well in, in this, uh, early summer of 2019. So that's, where, that's sort of the long and short history of angiotensin II. Um, clearly, there's a lot of side stories and, and so on and so forth attached to the trial. It was a huge undertaking. Uh, and personally speaking, you know, uh, I, I, I was very, very, very engaged in this trial. I, I was, uh, my wife was pregnant with, uh, with our twins at that time. The trial was happening and my pager was going off all through the night. And, 
it was um, it was a it was a uh, it was a battle on on a lot of different fronts but we but we we, we got to our end point and we were all very happy with the outcome and just uh, as a, a as trivia i guess the um, the first episode of critical matters which is in december of 2018 was with a dear friend of mine steve treziak who wrote the editorial for the Athos three trial in the new England journal of medicine with phil dellinger and we talked about uh, angiotensin 2 and just to update on base suppressors so i think that clearly we're, we're tied i mean to angiotensin three uh, angiotensin 2 in that respect as well with the podcast uh, since Athos three was published, like you said, it was FDA approved and now approved in Europe and being utilized as a, a drug uh, for vasopressor support in adult patients with uh, a septic shock and other types of distributive shock. Uh, but there's also been a lot of emerging data, uh, mostly from additional studies that it kind of uh, derived from data from, from the large clinical trial. And uh, I would like to maybe explore some of those um, areas because I think they're of great interest and help define further the potential role of angiotensin II, but also I think that it pushes us in the direction of what we were talking about at the beginning, which is personalizing vasopressor use and trying to identify the right phenotypes, at least, in terms of where we think it might be most, most useful and have the highest impact. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, low dose responders so one of the phenomenon that i've seen at the bedside but also i think was described in, in clinical trials is those patients that with a very small dose of angiotensin 2 have a remarkable response in their blood pressure i know that originally correct me if i'm wrong the initial dose that was uh, utilized to start the trial was 20 nanograms per kilogram per minute as a drip the current range that's recommended is anyway from five to 40 nanograms per kilogram per minute. But I do understand that there's some, 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 some interesting data on these low responders that go beyond just the, the clinical phenomena of observing it once in a while at the bedside. Yeah, I think um, Sergio, you, 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 you bring up some really, really important points over there. Um, and I have to tell you uh, that even when I was doing the trial, um, as the one person who who enrolled more patients in this trial than anyone else in the world, I you know I saw all kinds of responses, and I have to say it's a perfectly double-blinded, well done trial. But I I saw some patients who were really sick at the time we enrolled them. A very f a famous story to that one is I, I remember calling the the trial headquarters one time saying, hey, this is a really sick patient I'm enrolling. You know, the, the family is on the verge of, of calling it a day. I almost, uh, I'm sort of conflicted in my head, but I'm, I'm still going ahead and, and doing this. And I, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm a little worried this patient's really sick. And, and within 24 hours, that patient went from being on like four pressers to nothing and you know starts making urine and oxygenation improves and almost looks like a different person the family changes their mind doesn't want to talk about end of life care anymore and and i i will say that that happened at least in one or two patients and i was intrigued and this is sort of a similar story to what uh, you know dr chavla and colleagues had at gw where 
there's these patients who, yes, they were, this particular patient was not necessarily a low dose responder, was more a responder, even though he was he or she was really, really sick. Now, we're talking about the low dose responders. So in an a priori uh, fashion, the trial steering committee had decided that if patients respond to less than five nanograms per kilo per minute at at before 30 minutes of drug initiation, so you initiate the drug, you were supposed to initiate the drug at 20 nanograms per kilo per minute and then up titrate. But there was patients where you started at 20, their blood pressure skyrocketed, you actually had to down titrate all the way to five or less nanograms per kilo per minute at less than 30 minutes. And, and they, these patients were just exquisite responders. So we looked at them. We said, okay, uh, let's look at these patients who are super responders. And what we found in these patients who responded at less than five nanograms per kilo per minute was that they had significantly higher uh, MAP or, or blood pressure versus the um, other group. The other group would mean the usual uh, responders. Plus, we saw that day 28 survival was also higher in these patients who were responding at very, very low doses of angiotensin II. We controlled all for all kinds of confounders in a multivariate analysis, but still our survival benefit uh, came through. And, and all, not only that, these patients had a very favorable safety profile, and these patients did not discontinue treatment at all uh, compared to patients who you know, either did not respond or responded at, at very high doses where there was high chances of treatment discontinuation before getting to 48 hours. So this was really exciting, Sergio. This was totally in line with what we had, what uh, Lakhmir Chawla had reported before. It sort of made us feel that there's definitely an inherent physiology that we're hitting and uh, there, there needs to be more investigation as to why some patients are misbehaving this way with angiotensin too. And the, the goal, obviously, of personalized medicine is identifying which patients will benefit from individual therapies and making sure that we prioritize for those types of therapies for these patients. So I think we're going to start to go down that pathway. But before we, we get into the RAS uh, physiology and some of, I think, interesting topics, could you comment, Ashish, on just the clinical phenotype of acute kidney injury and its relationship to the effects of angiotensin II and the response to angiotensin II? Sure, sure. So when I talk about uh, the, the phenotype of acute kidney injury, uh, it also builds into the RAS pathway where we know that uh, renin is closely related to the uh, juxtagromerular apparatus in the kidneys. So when the GJ cells uh, sense hypotension or uh, you know, afferent arteriolar uh, dilation and, and hypotension in the GJ cells or decreased sodium delivery or increased sympathetic tone, then the kidney is stimulated to produce renin. And, and that renin then you know, takes angiotensinogen, which is produced in the liver, and then converts it to angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 is then converted to angiotensin 2 by the angiotensin-converting enzyme, most of which 
sits in the pulmonary capillary endothelium. So going back to renal uh, injury, we know that in terms of a phenotype, patients with acute kidney injury are the ones that are most likely to have the highest serum renin levels. And that is in fact what we have seen when we have dissected the ATHOS-3 data, the highest serum renin levels were in patients with AKI, highest serum renins were also in patients with ARDS, but definitely in patients with acute kidney injury. So high renin shock associated with acute kidney injury is definitely that phenotype that is a focus of our investigation now. And we have seen it. And in fact, I, you know, we, we did a post-talk analysis uh, in, in, a, in, in our ATHOS-3 population where we looked at patients who had developed acute kidney injury after uh, uh, randomization into the trial. And we looked at outcomes in that population, whether they were exposed to angiotensin II or placebo. And we saw that patients who were exposed to angiotensin II had faster liberation from renal replacement therapy, had higher blood pressures, and had a mortality benefit compared to patients who received placebo. So clearly, AKI was a segment of population. And then now we know that high renin shock in the setting of AKI is that segment of population which should probably received, receive exogenous angiotensin II. And I think that from a value perspective, clearly whenever you introduce a new drug that has a price differential with drugs such as catecholamines, there's going to be pushback at the hospital level or at the PNT committee level to use the drug in an appropriate way. But when you look at overall cost of care, if you can avoid or you can shorten the duration of renal replacement therapy, that is definitely something that needs to be a part of that equation. And I think can be a way of thinking of adding value to our support of hemodynamic instability with new drugs such as angiotensin II, correct? Yeah, correct. Absolutely. I mean, uh, we, we can talk about uh, this at length, but I'll, I'll stay away from long discussion. I will say that this is the, the cost bias to the way we treat our patients in the ICU. Uh, we're very uh, excited with, with things that are, you know, come to the institution at low cost. We're, 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 we, we experiment with them a lot, but when we come to slightly more expensive interventions, we tend to look at vasopressors as a intervention based on the healthcare dollars that are spent at that minute or within those 24 hours. But what we don't look at is long-term patient outcomes. For example, if you can rescue a patient from going on dialysis and save a day of day or two of dialysis and get the patient out of the ICU faster, that is way more money saved than a vial of an expensive vasopressor. So uh, the value proposition, we, we, we need to look at the big picture rather than narrow our focus and look at, oh, a presser A versus B versus C and just look at the amount of dollars spent then. Absolutely. You mentioned Renin, and I think that this is going to be kind of the, the key uh, in the near future towards a, a more personalized approach, it seems, to the use of vasopressors such as angiotensin II. So let's talk a little bit about Renin. And I would like to start maybe with a super basic 101 review of uh, the um, renin angiotensin aldosterone system kind of pathway and why renin might be of relevance for us just to, in terms of 
when it's high in these patients. And then maybe we can start talking about what are some of the findings related to renin and some of the studies that have emerged over the, the last couple of months. Sure. Yeah. So um, I, you know, five minutes ago, I, I just went over it really quickly, but, you know, renin is produced in the kidneys and it's produced in the kidneys in response to hypotension or low sodium delivery. And then, you know, it starts the cascade off where it, angiotensinogen, uh, renin acts on angiotensinogen and, and renin, then go to angiotensin 1, and then in the presence of angiotensin-converting enzyme, angiotensin 1 goes to angiotensin 2, which then has downstream effects of increased aldosterone release, increased antidiuretic hormone release, which together increase uh, blood volume, and then increase retention of sodium at the level of the kidneys, angiotensin 2 also, then directly increases systemic vascular resistance to increase arterial pressure. So, so renin is that key uh, regulator in this whole cascade. When we do things to the angiotensin converting enzyme, and when I say do things, either we make it pharmacologically non-functional by giving a patient years and years of ACE inhibitors, or dysfunctional because of byproducts of septic shock, or dysfunctional because of acute respiratory distress syndrome, because angiotensin-converting enzyme is produced in the pulmonary capillary endothelium, and acute respiratory distress syndrome will, will, will destroy the ability of angiotensin-converting enzyme production. And other interventions as well, such as prolonged cardiopulmonary bypass and so on, whatever, whenever we do something to the angiotensin-converting enzyme, both renin and angiotensin-1 will increase because of biofeedback in the reverse direction. So, you know, it's like you put a stop to a downstream process and everything upstream starts building up. Now, there, there was a very interesting work that was published out of a group in Brussels, Belgium, led by Gleason and colleagues. And I had the pleasure of writing an editorial to that work. And I labeled my editorial is Renin, the New Lactate. And the reason I did that was because Gleason and colleagues, and it included some great investigators on that group, including the great John Louis Vincent, uh, demonstrated in about, um, you know, it's about 120 samples they took from patients in their ICUs with all kinds of shock. They demonstrated in that single center prospective observational study that their, their patients, number one, had stable renin levels, largely unaffected by diurnal variation, the use of continuous renal replacement therapy or other drugs known to influence the RAS axis. That was great. And number two, that renin outperformed lactate as a predictor of mortality in these patients with a heterogeneous etiology of shock. So specifically, the rate of increase of plasma renin over time in non-survivors versus survivors was significantly greater compared with lactate, and that maximum renin appeared to be a much stronger and significant predictor of ICU mortality with a better um, AUC, ROC compared to lactate. And this was great. This made perfect sense with the dysfunctional ACE, renin that's built up, and then renin 
that is a predictor of mortality. The other part of this interesting uh, thing is that if I if you look at Ethos 3 data and Renin and we compare lactate, lactate traditionally has been a marker of poor perfusion, inadequate resuscitation, poor perfusion, anaerobic metabolism. Patients in Ethos 3 were absolutely adequately resuscitated, had in fact largely had largely normal lactates as well. Their lactates were not sky high. So in adequately resuscitated patients, Gleason and colleagues also adequately resuscitated patients. So renin is a marker in, adic in adequately resuscitated patients of poor outcomes in shock. This also becomes really interesting because a big problem with lactate is that there are a lot of different things that determine high lactate. We all know that all high lactates are not the same. There is a lot of high lactates that mean nothing and are still treated as septic shock and given tons of volume when they should not be given. But anyway, that discussion aside, all of this data was, was really, really interesting. So we then went back into the ATHOS 3 data and we said, okay, if renin is really that focal point of where this, this whole axis pivots, then look, let's look at renin. Let's look at angiotensin 1 and angiotensin 2, the downstream products. Now, I also want to tell the listeners at this moment that it's not as simple as renin, angiotensinogen, angiotensin 1, ACE enzyme, and angiotensin 2. There is also an alternative pathway which where the ACE2 enzyme acts on angiotensin 1 and converts it into angiotensin 1 to 7 and angiotensin 2 to 9. And these angiotensin byproducts are actually vasodilatory. In fact, more and more literature suggests that it is the harmful effect of these byproducts that causes all the hypotension, in patients who take ACE inhibitors and in patients whose main ACE enzyme is dysfunctional rather than the all of it being the going away of angiotensin 2. So keeping that in mind, the first experiment we did was we looked at angiotensin 1 to angiotensin ratios in our entire ATOS 3 population. We chose a population median of 1.63 Normal angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2 ratios are 0.5. So our population in general in ethos 3 had a much higher angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 ratio, which meant that most of our patients in shock were high renin, high angiotensin 1, low angiotensin 2 patients. And we saw in this post-talk analysis that patients who had a high angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 ratio had a greater incidence of prior exposure to ACE inhibitors and greater, much higher incidence of catecholamine-resistant vasodilatory shock that then needed high-dose uh, norepinephrine equivalents. And also these patients, when they were given synthetic angiotensin II, had a survival benefit. This data, was very interesting. And that has really been the trigger point for our recent work where we have now focused on renin as a marker for survival in vasodilatory shock. 
before we talk about Renin as a marker for survival in respiratory shock, um, could you just clarify for, for our audience the advantage of Renin as a bioassay over measuring the ratio of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2? Yeah, so I, I think the biggest uh, advantage of uh, using Renin as a bioassay is the fact that, you know, it's a, it's a cheap and inexpensive uh, bioassay. It's easily available. And like I just said, you know, there's data now to show that serum Renin levels are largely unaltered by a lot of interventions that we do in the intensive care unit. And, and, and really, rather than doing a complex angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2 ratio, uh, which will then be dependent on other factors as well, a singular value from a serum Renin level that could be titrated over time, same way as we do with lactate, would be way, way, way easier. So Ashish, can you share with us, uh, you mentioned this recent study, which is, I presume, the, the Blue Journal study that was published ahead of print in, uh, recently. Can you share with us uh, kind of the, the nuts and bolts and the findings of that paper, the Renin and Survival and Vasodilatory Shock? Sure, definitely. So, uh, you know, that, like I just said, we, we had a lot of data to support uh, the hypothesis that renin is a key marker of survival. So what we basically did was we looked at serum samples from patients who were enrolled in the ethos 3 trial. We looked at renin, angiotensin 1, and angiotensin 2 prior to the start of uh, the given uh, giving of angiotensin 2 or placebo. and then at after three hours of the giving of angiotensin 2 or placebo. And the, there was some key results. The first thing was that our baseline serum renin concentration in about 80% of our patients was um, nearly three times that of the normal range. So normal ren range for serum renin is anywhere from 2 to 60 picograms per CC, our median renin concentration was nearly 170 picograms per CC. And, and some of our renins were, were as high as 6,000. Most of our renins were in the 300s. And like I said, highest in AKI and ARDS uh, subgroups. And then we also saw that these renin levels correlated positively with angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 ratios meaning thereby that if you had high renin, then you had a high angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 ratio. At three hours after the initiation of angiotensin 2 therapy, there was a more than 50% reduction, a huge reduction in renin levels compared with patients who received placebo where the reduction was about 15%. So Furthermore, in patients with renin concentrations that were above that population median that was uh, that, I, that I just said was 170 picograms per cc. So if we looked at patients who achieved more than that 170 and then got exogenous angiotensin 2, there was a significant reduction of 28-day mortality, a difference of about 20%, so about 50% of patients in that subgroup died versus 70% of patients treated with placebo. And this outcome was statistically very significant. And 
there was several multivariate analyses controlling for other uh, covariates and confounders and the outcome stood the test of those analyses. So all sort of then fits into that puzzle of the renin angiotensin aldosterone axis and why high serum renin is a marker for poor outcomes in shock and here we have a biomarker that we can specifically target angiotensin 2 therapy too. In fact, I, I say this and I practice this, I do get serum renin levels checked in a whole slew of patients with shock in my daily practice now to see how my patients are behaving and whether or not they need angiotensin 2. And, and also I think it's a, it's a great way to narrow also and identify those patients who have the highest likelihood of first responding with a I would imagine that high renin levels, not only when we use angiotensin II are associated with better outcomes, like you mentioned in that um, post-hoc analysis, but also it probably the response in the blood pressure is much more dramatic because renin would serve as the identifier that that pathway that we're trying to correct is actually altered in these patients. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, we, we have a pathway and uh, with the work that we just uh, published in the Blue Journal, uh, I think uh, we we are happy that we have a mechanistic pathway to know how angiotensin II is giving our patients a benefit. Quite often, we use vasopressors in a sort of, you know, throw the kitchen sink at the patient, don't know what will act. But here we have a mechanistic pathway where we can we can actually use a presser for a reason and then also gauge its response. Now, I will say that this is post hoc retrospective data and it will need prospective validation. And, and, and really, I, I, would, I would love to be a part of that randomized trial where we do prospective validation of this. But while we await prospective validation, I think it is not wrong to check serum renins on your patients and see if there is indeed a pattern that is identifiable. So I think that from what I'm hearing, Ashish, a couple of things I mean come to, to mind as, as we try to close this together and try to give some advice for the clinicians at the bedside. Number one is that where personalization of vasopressor support starts by understanding that each patient might have a different uh, perfusion to uh, to MAP uh, curve for each for their organs, and really identifying the right MAP for those patients might take more than just starting with one number that fits all, which is 65. I think that very important also what you mentioned with the idea that there are three different pathways that can cause or perpetuate or exacerbate hypotension and vasodilatory shock and using approaches that are multimodal makes sense from a physiological perspective. Uh, the thing that I think that we talked a lot about was the role of adjutensin II as part of, of that trifecta of catecholamines, vasopressin, and now adding angiotensin II. And the real question is, as this is a new drug, is where do you, when do you add that? And it seems that earlier is better than later in general terms, in terms of improving outcomes. But it also seems that there might be phenotypes and biotypes, let's call them, that might be of great interest for us with angiotensin II. And specifically what you mentioned was acute kidney injury as a marker probably of patients who and whom you might want to use angiotensin II earlier than later uh, as an adjunct to, to your 
therapy uh, support. And also what you're mentioning now with the renin uh, data uh, as a marker uh, of increased um, worse outcomes, but also as a marker of who might respond to angiotensin II and, and even maybe have a survival benefit. Could you just, for septic shock first, kind of summarize how you would apply this at the bedside? I think, um, uh, Sergio, the, you summarized this this really well. I, I think the, the main thing to understand in septic shock is that there is no going away from things like norepinephrine. Um, every patient with septic shock should not get angiotensin II. However, I will say that we need a culture change where we need to look at every patient slightly differently. No two patients with septic shock are the same. So uh, I'm hoping for a day where a patient will roll into the ICU and you will check uh, markers like serum renin. Um, you will check markers like maybe an angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2 ratio, a lactate, um, you know, maybe a marker for vasopressin responsiveness, and then choose a presser accordingly. Now, run-of-the-mill septic shock, say, you know, UTI, under-resuscitated, norepinephrine is definitely the first-line agent for, for a variety of good reasons. Um, but think about adding your second vasopressor sooner rather than later. Do not wait for 24 hours later when your patient is on 20 micrograms of norepinephrine per minute and has been on it for two days. That is a sign of failure. You should not have to wait till failure because then you're just using a drug when there's no receptors for the drug to act on. So early multimodal vasopressor therapy, early checking of markers, and then if you identify high renin in a patient with septic shock who has acute kidney injury or who has ARDS, knowing this data, it is it would uh, it would be common sense to start angiotensin too early, definitely in conjunction with norepinephrine, but but yes, start it early. Don't wait till the patient is into advanced ARDS and on a PEEP of 20 and dying because of respiratory failure. Start it early. That is the biggest message I, I want to uh, give my uh, audience today. Um, and similarly, I want to extend this to beyond just septic shock. Uh, I talked briefly about uh, the general concept of dysfunctional ACE. We do know that patients who are on prolonged cardiopulmonary bypass, and in fact, not just prolonged cardiopulmonary bypass, patients who are on extracorporeal circuits to support oxygenation, they, their blood is not traversing the pulmonary capillaries as in a normal patient. They have dysfunctional ACE activity. Even though I don't have the data today to show you angiotensin 1 and angiotensin 2 levels in patients on prolonged cardiopulmonary bypass, I will say that these are the patients where it makes a lot of theoretical sense because they are on a lot of ACE inhibition coming into cardiac surgery. Then they get six hours of a bypass run. Then they come out vasoplegic. Then they're put on tons of what we call voodoo medicines, as some of my friends say vitamin so-and-so, vitamin so-and-so, methylene blue, and this and that. Nothing works. That's not supported by data. And patient stays in the ICU three days longer. Those patients need to be on angiotensin too early because there is a physiological rationale to give them angiotensin too. And I personally uh, practice that in my cardiac surgical ICU. 
And I have so far in uh, results that are being published as we speak, uh, I've shown good results in not just uh, patients with coronary artery bypass grafts, but also patients who have received heart transplants and patients who have had renal failure because of other reasons and then received heart transplants. Excellent. And I was going to ask you about cardiac surgery, but I think that that covers it very well. And we definitely will be looking forward to, to more of the data being published and more studies to come down the down the line. I think it's always exciting where physiology matches what we see at the bedside. And, and like you said, the piece of the puzzle fall in the right place and it all makes sense. So that's all very, very exciting, I think, for intensivists in general. Ashish, this has been a wonderful conversation about vasopressors, about personalizing vasopressor support, about angiotensin II physiology, and I think that we could probably keep on keep on going. But I want to be respectful of your time and uh, want to kind of close uh, the our conversation here. One of the things that we usually do on the podcast is close with some questions that are unrelated to the topic. So if that's okay, if you're game for that, I would like to go in that direction. Oh, sure. Fire away. <laughs> so the first question relates uh, to books or people who have influenced you the most and how so? Well, I will take people because that's 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 easier when you suddenly put that question in front of me. Um, so with people, I will say my parents. Uh, my dad is a vascular surgeon who trained in the United States in the late 60s and then uh, went back to India and and truly set up vascular surgery in India and sort of known as the father of vascular surgery in India. And I grew up with a discussion of uh, aortic aneurysms uh, around the dining table. And he's, uh, he's my inspiration, the person I've always looked up to, uh, always um, looking at him. I, and he still tells me that, even though he's 81 years of age, that, that there is no end to the amount of hard work you can put into something and every time i come back with a rough from a rough icu shift and i put on facetime and i call him in india he'll be like you know just just stop stop the drama and get back to work so he always pushes me to work harder and i i and i'm so grateful for him inspiring me um, my mom who kept the family together while my uh, dad was lost in his uh, blood vessels and, and show in the operating room. Uh, without her, you know, uh, these kids wouldn't have um, been where they are today. So uh, uh, my big salutations to them and uh, my teachers in anesthesiology and critical care. So I trained initially in anesthesia and critical care in India. And then I came back to the U.S. and I trained again. And both places... Uh, some of my teachers were my absolute inspirations to do critical care. Critical care is never an easy option after doing anesthesia. Uh, there's a lot of very nicer lifestyle fellowships after anesthesia. I chose to do critical care because my mentors, both in India and the U.S., were some of the best of the best in uh, critical care anesthesia. And, and clearly, I wouldn't have been anywhere close to where I am today had they not, and even today, continued to hold my hand and show me how to do things the right way in both, you know, academics and life. And definitely, I think always, I mean, recognizing our our parents and our mentors is very important. But also, I think that it really ultimately boils down to when you become a parent or you become a mentor and realizing how hard it is and how amazing the job the people who came before you 
did in that respect. So I think it's definitely something that that is worth, I mean, uh, remembering. The second question, Ashish, relates to what do you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most people don't believe or at least don't act like they believe it? <laughs> wow, this is a slightly difficult one, but I, I will say that um, most people take life and medicine for granted and they believe that they can, in the ICU, for example, predict patient trajectories. Uh, you know, predict when an end-of-life discussion should happen. And similarly, people can predict human behavior in real life. Uh, but I feel that the real truth in both medicine and life is a lack of predictability. Uh, we sometimes have plans for our life for the next two years, five years, 10 years. Life uh, is supremely unpredictable. Life changes. People you know change. Colleagues and friends, they uh, behave differently to you, respond to you in different fashions. And similarly, patients are, are unpredictable in the ICU. Things can change any time. Um, so the, the message there being that uh, believe that life and medicine are both unpredictable, but uh, stay focused. Keep doing what you know how to do the best. Uh, keep focusing on your positive points and keep doing your best every single day in life life will find a way. Well said. The final question is, what would you want every intensivist to know? Could be a quarter of fact. Yeah, so my very favorite quote of all time is uh, uh, a, from a guy that I, I, I look up to a lot in, in terms of facing hardship and still being brilliant and getting to what he did in life is um, Stephen Hawking, the famous physicist uh, with uh, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis who recently passed away um, and there's is I am quoting him uh, and I and I will say that remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet try to make sense of what you see and wonder about what makes the universe exist be curious and however difficult life may seem there is always something you can do and succeed at it matters that you don't just give up and that Sergio I feel is a, a quote that I repeat to myself after a long day in the ICU uh, after I've worked one week on a paper or after a peer reviewer has sent me a nasty peer review where I'm like how am I going to get through this and through several other situations in life and that's why it really inspires me. And it's a brilliant quote, obviously, from a brilliant man. And thanks for sharing. It was beautiful. And I think that that's a perfect place to stop. Ashish, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your time with us. And I look forward to, to having you back on the podcast soon. Absolutely, Sergio. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound Critical Care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.